I'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those you and over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Can't help but think as we worship together this morning and read that passage and considered the fact that this very word that comes to us as the people of God this morning is the very comes from the very word of God that our brothers and sisters all around the world in whatever their circumstances what are their whatever their conditions they're drawing upon this same source for their encouragement and their hope and their truth and their belief. And I think of my brothers and sisters most recently in Zambia. And I know that today, well, they're, they're all finished with this by now. They're, they're getting ready for bed, frankly. But today they have worshipped, reading out of the same word of God and encouraged by the same truth that we are today. What a blessing it is to be part of the family of God. And so this morning, I want to consider this topic from our our text in 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll most specifically focus on verses 6 and 7, but we'll draw from different passages there. In dealing with what I call dealing with anxious care, I'm concerned with anxious care. Our, Our text says, humble yourselves, therefore, Under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What led me to want to speak to this is because I know that many of us have anxious cares. We have have issues and concerns that we have to deal with, and, and often in my conversations with brothers and sisters, we, we recognize the issues of life that we struggle with. And so I want to consider these verses. Now, we know that these verses were written by Peter to saints 
who had been scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And these verses are reminiscent of Paul's words to the church at Philippi when he says, Do not be anxious for anything in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. Peter's words are written in the context of affliction and suffering around 64 A.D. Peter is writing to, he calls them, elect exiles. Look at chapter 1 and verse 1. Chapter 1 and verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. They are identified as saints or Christians who were strangers in the world, scattered about, suffering persecution. There's that word that Matthew Allen talked about last week. The exiles of the dispersion, the diaspora. He talked about that in Sunday school, and he talked about that again in the, in the, in the service afterwards. That's who we're writing to here, the diaspora, the, the dispersed, uh, dispersed ones. These saints had been scattered and dispersed. And apparently, they were confused and discouraged by the persecution they were suffering because of their faith. And so Peter writes to this this concern. We find in Scripture that it is not particularly irregular for believers to suffer hardship, tribulation, or persecution. In the world, our Lord said in John 16, 33, you will have tribulation. It is not especially unusual for God's people to find themselves out of sync with the ebb and the flow of culture. And certainly there are places in the world where Christians do, in fact, suffer serious persecution. So we find in that context, just as in our own, that there are cares in this world. There are those who think, or who would want you to think, that becoming a Christian insulates us from any of the difficulties of life. They say that if Christians have enough faith, all their troubles will disappear. And they are to be happy, happy, happy all the time. Well, we know that that's just nonsense. It has never been the teaching of authentic Orthodox Christianity. Those who teach such ideas are false prophets. Because of the fall and because of sin in the world, as well as the ever-present spiritual warfare that is taking place around us and in us, there are cares. But the danger is not that there are trials and tribulations. The danger is that we may succumb to the temptation of anxious care the spirit of worry, and thus dishonor our Savior and our God. By the way, let me suggest that this is particularly difficult for those who have been dispersed. 
And I'm referring to those who have left the comforts of home and the fellowship of a home body of believers to go to other places and cultures, even if they are going specifically to serve God. In particular, I am thinking of our missionaries. That is why we must, even now, begin to covenant with the Allens that we will be remembering them as they go to Honduras. We must keep them in our thoughts and prayers and conversations and correspondence. I speak from experience. But all of us, all of us have cares and concerns. We see this a lot today, don't we? People have much to care about. All the troubles, financial matters, terrorism, the environment, health issues, domestic violence, substance abuse, corrupt politicians, the moral declension of our culture, all manner of things to care about. And these things affect the saints as well as anyone else. We Christians are certainly not immune from these cares. And the danger is to slip into anxious care. The danger is to slip into a state of worry. Brothers and sisters, I would like to suggest to you that God does not intend for us to worry. I think the Bible makes it abundantly clear in numerous passages that God does not intend for His people to worry. Indeed, I would like to suggest that anxious care is not a character trait of a healthy Christian. But let's consider how we often see people respond to the cares and afflictions that come into their lives. How a non-believer typically responds to affliction. Perhaps there's this notion of insensibility, simply pretending that troubles or issues don't exist. Perhaps just simple denial about the realities of life. Often we see fretfulness. You know the look, the furrowed brow, the nervous wringing of the hands, the distractedness, the irritability, constant commenting or complaining. Perhaps they would slip into hopeless despondency. Those of us who have been around for a while, have you ever known such a time as this? The widespread despondency, the despair, so many people with depression to lesser or greater degree. Sometimes they would even fall into hardened impiety, either cynicism, anger, or outright pursuit of self-seeking gratification simply in order to cope with life. We often see this in some of the nihilistic rantings of much of pop culture. The entertainment industry is flooded with dark, apocalyptic programming. Many young people are so jaded by what they perceive to be a hopeless existence, they long to escape to a virtual reality. None of these responses are consistent with the teaching of the Bible. Indeed, for a non-Christian, affliction often drives a person further and further away from God. And that only adds to the misery. However, affliction for the Christian 
drives a person to God. From our text, I would like to consider two ways. One, it drives a Christian to a state of submission to the mighty hand of God. Our text says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. We can see that the affliction comes from the mighty hand of God. Affliction is neither accidental nor random. Indeed, sometimes it is affliction that causes us to realize our sin and leads us to repentance. We think of Psalm 119, which often refers to the restorative blessings of God's sent affliction. I think particularly verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Or verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Or there is verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Can you see what David saw? Affliction is designed to drive a person to God. Secondly, it drives to a state of faith. Our text adds, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Surely, in our affliction, our faith is put to the test. When our initial fretting and ranting has run its course, when our knee-jerk reactions, sanctified or otherwise, have expended themselves, it all comes down to this. Do I believe God or do I not? I often tell myself and my friends in the midst of fears and worries to preach to yourself. What do you know for sure? Preach to yourself what you know for sure. That God is absolutely sovereign. That God is always right and good. And that God loves you. Well, let's consider these two points in a little more detail. Humble yourselves, we're told. Now, this is actually not an active verb. It is in the passive voice. It could be rendered, be humbled. Do you see that? Be humbled under the mighty hand of God. There are various responses we could have to being under God's mighty hand. We just considered a few of those responses. But here we are told to be humbled. Let God's mighty hand do its work. Don't resist. Don't complain. Don't use unbiblical means to try to lessen the effect. Be humbled. Then we read the word, therefore. I learned long ago. That when you see the word therefore in scripture, you need to see what it is there for. Why are we to be humbled under the mighty hand of God? Well, verse 5 tells us. Verse 5 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, it is God's hand, his mighty hand. We must remember that we are creatures 
under the hand of the Creator. He has made us. He knows of what we consist. We are subjects under the hand of the Sovereign. He is the all-wise and all-powerful King. He knows what He is doing. We are children under the hand of the Father. Last week was Father's Day. Now, I particularly like Father's Day for obvious reasons. I am one. And in that day, we, we fathers get a lot of nice things said to us and about us. We don't get that any other time of year, but on Father's Day, <laughs> we get that. And it's very, very nice. And this week, as I was preparing, I thought about myself as father and what my hand represented to my children when they were young. Surely, the hand represented correction. But protection, compassion, gentleness, and love. I love to hold my kids. I love pat their hair, to play with them with these hands and to care for them and protect them, sometimes catch them. That's what these hands as a father represent. We as children are under the mighty hand of God because you see as a daddy, I wasn't always able to do that work. But the mighty hand of God never fails. It is God's way of lifting you up in due time. We're told the hand that is on you in affliction will also be under you. The text adds that at the proper time, he may exalt you or lift you up. Do you see the irony here? The irony is that being humbled under God's mighty hand, receiving the grace that he gives leads to exaltation. We usually don't think that way about being humbled, do we? The world certainly doesn't think that way. But God's ways are not man's ways. Remember, as the Puritan Henry Scudder said, all God's afflictions are to remove impediments of grace. Of course, we know that the opposite of humility is pride. And I'm still waiting for someone to show me where in Scripture pride is ever mentioned in a positive way. As far as I know, pride is never encouraged in Scripture. Rather, we are informed that God loves the spirit of humility. We see the same idea in James 4. There we read in verse 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And verse 7 adds, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And then James adds these interesting words. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Certainly, I believe... It is entirely legitimate 
and safe to say that the spirit of pride and failure to submit to God or humble ourselves under his mighty hand, if not directly from the devil, are indicative of the devil's unholy ways. We are quite aware of the hideous pride of the creature Lucifer. And in our own text, in the context of dealing with anxious care, we are exhorted in verse 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Resist him with humility. But notice the words, at the proper time. That is crucial, isn't it? Because God's timing is always perfect. Because of the limitations and restrictions of our minds and hearts, we can't tell time very well. But God's timing is always proper. God's timing is always perfect. Look back again at chapter 1. Verses 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So we can see that the exaltation may not even be in this lifetime. It is according to the proper time, but exaltation it shall be. The passage we looked at in James 4 adds in verse 10, Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Again, our first Peter text adds this in verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. There is always a danger of a wrong response to affliction. Indeed, our most typical response is to do the opposite of being humbled, isn't it? It is to exert our proud sensibilities rather than to be humbled. How can this happen to me? I don't deserve this. I'm not perfect, but I'm a pretty good guy, especially compared to some people I know. This isn't fair. I don't need this. Yes, our tendency is to elevate our proud hearts rather than be humbled. Furthermore, our proud hearts then tend to simply assume that affliction will be bad for us, right? We don't like it. We don't appreciate it. And we just assume 
it will be bad for us. Isn't it interesting that people often praise God when things go well? And well is defined as things going the way they want them to. (laughs) But they forget to praise God when trials and afflictions come. When circumstances become troublesome. That is the way our culture and our fallen hearts have taught us to think. But our text in God's word tells us to be humbled so that he may exalt us at the proper time. Interestingly, proud hearts can't be exalted. They don't believe they need it. They are already exalted to the extent that they think they are entitled. Instead, consider these words that my daughter recently posted on Facebook. Thinking about some lyrics from Michael Card's song, which talks about when life becomes more nightmare than a dream. She said, All go through deep waters. Some are chemically induced through curse-influenced depression. Some are relational griefs. Some are unrelenting mishaps, one after another, beating one's resilience into, uncle, I give up. The world has its solutions, bigger and bigger band-aids, therapy, incarceration, education, separation, The Christian curls up in the lap of Jesus. We cannot turn from our Lord, for to whom would we go? He has the words of eternal life. When a child struggles to believe that you love them, you shower them with affection and fun. When a child of God struggles to believe he loves them, fiery billows engulf them. It makes no sense to my limited sight. Christians choose humble submission, faith, or rage, despair, denial, rejection. Though my next 35 years produce grief and trial, irritation and confusion, yet will I praise thee, Most High, my Sovereign King, the All-Glorious One, After all, he's the king, I'm the child. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Secondly, we are given practical directive. We are told to cast all our anxieties on him. Now, this is strongly figurative language. It says casting, not laying. It requires effort. It is no easy matter. It is the same idea as the action that the fisherman, of course, Peter had been a fisherman, the the action that the fishermen would use to cast their nets into the water. It required effort. Can you see it? Grasping the net with both hands and swinging it out into the water. Casting the net. That is the picture of casting anxieties. This is not mental inactivity and fatal resignation. A pretense that there is nothing to be concerned about. 
It is not the postmodern, hey, whatever. It's all good, man. No. No. It is a faith-informed, proactive response to the true conditions of life, difficult as they may be. So we ask, cast what? Casting all your anxieties. What anxieties? Well, perhaps it is our views as to what is necessary and conducive to happiness in ourselves and others. And as those necessities continuously fail to be realized or are threatened in one way or another or are thwarted by one source or another, the anxious care begins to mount in our breasts. Maybe it is the economy or our employment situation or lack of employment. Maybe it is health concerns in ourselves or our loved ones. Maybe it is the state of the political landscape. Maybe it is the increasing threat of terrorism. Maybe it is the increasing threat of persecution of Christians. Maybe it is the direction of a loved one's life, a spouse or a child. Perhaps it is our notion of the way things ought to be done. There's a sense in which it doesn't matter. We are to be casting all our anxieties on him, all of them. Now, it is interesting. The word here is an aorist participle. All you grammarians know exactly what that means. And it means this. It, it could be rendered having cast. It is a decisive past action continuing to the present. You see, we are humbled by having cast and continuing to cast our anxieties, our cares in this world, on Him. When the afflicted Christian is called to cast all his cares on God, it is obviously supposed that he has cares, many cares, distressing cares, cares which he feels He cannot bear. The proud individual will not admit this, will he? The proud person wants to respond to his anxieties and fix them his own way. But the one who is humbled is casting and continues casting all his anxieties on God. But we also ask, how is this casting done? Brothers and sisters, I believe this is very important because throughout the ages, and particularly today, men have taken great liberty to devise all manner of actions and activities and rituals and methods and incantations as well as the propagation of their own spurious notions to try to somehow tap into the mysterious power of the divine. Listen, there's no secret How is the casting of our anxieties on God done? By carefully using the means of grace that God has appointed in his word. First, search the scriptures for promises of God. Passages such as the beloved Psalm 37. Ponder for a moment 
these words from the psalmist. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. The steps of a man are established by the Lord. When he delights in his way, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Can you cast your anxieties on a God like that? Second, Pray. Now that might at first blush sound fairly simplistic. But you see, anxiety and prayer are two opposing forces in the Christian's experience. Isn't that what the verse we alluded to earlier is all about? Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication... With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It has been said that worry is a form of pride because it involves taking concerns upon oneself rather than entrusting them to God. Believers can trust God. Because as their father, he cares for them. But prayer is the opposite of pride. For in prayer, we are confessing our dependence, our faith, our need, our helplessness for the favor of the Almighty God. We are casting our anxieties on him. Consider the words of the Puritan Charles Bridges, commenting on Proverbs 1.23, in which God promises, I will pour out my spirit upon you. Bridges says, if your helplessness is a real grievance, bring it to him with an honest desire to be rid of it. If you have never prayed, now is the time for prayer. If you cannot pray, at least make the effort. Stretch out the withered hand in the obedience of faith. If your heart be hard, your convictions faint, your resolutions unsteady. All is provided for in the promise, I will pour out my spirit upon you. Can you cast your anxieties on a God like that? This is based, of course, on the belief with faith that God has the power to control what excites our anxiety with his mighty hand. We have a sovereign God. That God will employ his controlling power in the best way possible. We have a compassionate 
sovereign God. And that God will employ His controlling power in the best possible way for me. We have a personal, compassionate, sovereign God. Why do we believe all this? Our text tells us, because He cares for you. He cares for you. And we are reminded of that blessed passage in Romans 8, beginning with verse 28. Hear these words, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was also raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger, or sword, as it is written for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is why and how we can have peace with God in the midst of affliction. And that is why and how we can be humble and meek before men during times of great care. Now be careful. It is okay to seek sympathy, counsel, help from others. It is okay to read good Christian books for advice. But never, never cast your cares or place your confidence there. Our hope is in God. So I finish with this thought. You'll notice I have been speaking to Christians. As we said, the passage we have been considering was written to the elect exiles the scattered saints, that is, only those who by faith have come to the Father through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible declares that those whom God will ultimately exalt are only those who are His children, only His sons and daughters, only the children of God dare take comfort in the midst of trials and tribulations. Our message a message of comfort and hope 
to all of us who suffer in various ways, to all of us burdened with the cares of what it means to live in a fallen world, is this. Our only place of rest, the only safe place to be, is in Jesus, our Lord. Didn't he bid us come to him? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If you do not know Jesus, I call upon you now to humbly and repentantly come to Jesus the Christ. If you are a child of God today, I implore you to humble yourselves Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Amen.